Well, good morning, Anchor. How we doing? We doing good? Okay, uh, Brian brought up that we can't celebrate Christmas on the 24th, which uh, as a God-fearing Christian man, I agree with, but I know that's not everyone's been. So we'll do a quick poll, show of hands. I won't call on you, but I will ask you to raise your hand. How many of you open presents, at least one present on the 24th? You have at least one Wow. Come Lord Jesus. How many are 25th only? How many are 25th only? Okay, y'all are my people. Um, Christmas is almost here, which is crazy, right? Another show of hands. How many of you, like me and my wife, last night uh, realized we forgot someone or something, and then the Amazon shipping times uh, are in January, and now we need to find a new gift plan? We need to find a new gift plan? Still shopping? Okay, there. Some hands. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I plan really well when I work here, guys, and then sometimes at home when we're dealing with Christmas presents, all that like planning ability of mine just goes out the window. Um, I like to think I use it up here at the church. Uh, if we haven't met yet, though, my name is John. I'm the executive pastor here at Anchor, and I am so glad to be with you this morning as we get our hearts and souls ready for Christmas. It's the last Sunday of Advent, and we get to really lean in and, and, and say, what does Christmas look like for us this year? Uh, we're going to start in a different way than we usually do, though. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story about a baseball player. I like baseball. Uh, anyone who knows the name of my children knows that. Uh, my oldest son is named Griffey, because uh, in keeping with a long-suffering Christian tradition, I'm a Mariners fan. Uh, my youngest child is named Cy. We compromised with Aria. I did not get to name her after a character in a league of their own. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, but I really like baseball. And so I'm going to tell you a story about a baseball player in the early 1900s who was born in the Midwest. And like all early 1900s baseball players, he has a baseball player's name. His name is Wally Pipp, because that is a baseball player's name. Uh, Wally Pipp was born in February of 1893 in Chicago. He grew up in Michigan, good Midwestern, all-American baseball guy. Uh, he had a head injury from playing around as a kid, so he struggled with headaches for a lot of his life. But he wanted to be a professional baseball player. And uh, despite his constant headaches, Wally ended up going to college where he studied architecture and played baseball in college. And as one does when you're good enough and you're chasing down that dream, as any young man who wants to play baseball did, uh, he went into the pros. And the minor leagues weren't fully fleshed out at this point in time, and so uh, his first couple of years in pro ball, he struggled. Now, for those of you who don't know about baseball, one of the things that is a, it's kind of a bellwether or a barometer of a good baseball hitter is the number 300, the number 300 for your batting average. That's a, if you're hitting 300, you're probably going to be just fine or even really good depending on, on the year. And so in 1914, something clicked for Wally Pipp and he had a batting average of 314. He also led the league in home runs. In 1915, something amazing happened for young Wally Pipp that changed his life forever for the better. His contract was sold to the New York Yankees. Again, this is the teens, right? The early 20s, and Wally Pipp is on the prestige team of that generation. It pains my heart because it's the Yankees, but he's on that prestige team of the generation. He was the starting first baseman for the Yankees. He led the league in home runs again for the next couple of years. He was hitting for average, still over 300, hitting for power. He was such a great power hitter that they put him in the cleanup spot, which is where you put the power hitter on your lineup in those days, even though Babe Ruth was also on the team. Like, that's how good he was. Then one day in 1925, something happened. The most well-known account says the story this way. 
Well, a pip came in with a headache, whether it's from his, his childhood wound or, or too much of a night on the town the night before, we don't know, but he came in and asked the trainer for two aspirin. Wally would later say those are the two most expensive aspirin in history. Because you see what happened is this, the manager knew, hey, maybe you could use a rest. So he says, hey, sit this one out, we'll get you in the lineup the next day. Wally didn't get into the lineup the next day. The player that replaced Wally at first base from that day, he took the two most expensive aspirin in the world, played for the next 2,130 games straight. It's a guy named Lou Gehrig, one of the most well-known baseball players that's ever played the game. See, Wally Pipp had a great career. Wally Pipp was a, was a professional baseball player in the best league in the world. And even though the country had a smaller population, Wally was in the top 1% of 1% of kids who've ever picked up a baseball bat. He was at the pinnacle of his profession. Wally Pipp is not in the Hall of Fame, Lou Gehrig is. See, most people, what they know about Wally Pipp's career, the thing he's most famous for is being replaced by Lou Gehrig. I can't imagine how devastating that would be. To work so hard for all of your life, to get to the pinnacle of your profession. Again, he was the cleanup hitter, the starting first baseman for the New York Yankees during that like Bronx Bombers era. And have your entire career be overshadowed by the guy who replaced you. There used to be a phrase of, of don't get Wally pipped because his name became synonymous for, you know, someone, maybe it was a, a stage actor getting replaced by someone who ended up being more successful. And that whole idea of just someone replacing you being more successful. I can't imagine that. I think it's so hard for us to look at that story and, and take a hold of it and understand the emotions and the feelings that Wally felt after being overshadowed. But on the other hand, I think sometimes we get a little bit of a picture of it. We've talked throughout this last month about what it looks like to be in a season of waiting for something, a season where we're hoping for breakthrough, where you know, we're writing the story and we get to be the hero at the end of that story, or at least a main character. We've talked about that feeling of anticipation of waiting. But I think there's a question that we need to ask today, which is this, what happens when your season of waiting, your season of anticipation actually isn't about you? that instead of seeing victory that you get to be used by God to bring or see in your own life is actually about preparing the way for someone else. We've seen that that can be devastating. There are story after story after story after story of young hotshot CEOs that made it to the pinnacle of their field in their 30s or their 40s and then looked around and felt lonely and empty because they realized it wasn't what they thought it was. We've watched, as, as I've watched, as peers of mine who were, who were called gifted kids grow up and wonder, did I ever realize my full potential? It can be devastating. I think when we look at, at stories like Wally's or those stories in our own lives, when we look at it through our own imperfect eyes, it can be devastating. But I ask this question. What if we tried to look at that season of waiting, our season of anticipation, our life's purpose, not through our own imperfect eyes, but through the eyes of God? the eyes of someone in God who has seen everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen and holds all that plan together in his hands. When we have that perspective, I actually believe this, that we can find joy in that journey through life, even if we aren't the main character in that story. So today we're gonna go to scripture as we always do when we teach, and we're gonna look at the story of a man who, who had to grapple with this very real perspective. A man who, who knew from day one, really, that his purpose was not for his own sake, for his own ministry, for his own name, but to prepare the way for someone else. To prepare the way for someone that's the reason why we celebrate Christmas. So we're going to look at the story of a man named John the Baptist. 
Now, John the Baptist is someone that we know a lot about in scripture. He was a preacher and a follower of God, and he was a well-known preacher in his own right. He was widely, he was widely known. And even Jesus himself referred to John as Elijah who is to come which for, for context's sake is a really big deal. Elijah is one of the most well-known prophets, leaders in the Old Testament. And for Jesus himself to say that John is Elijah come, that is high praise, right? It's, it's the, the prince who has promised, the one who is yet to come, the one we've been waiting for, like all these things that you can think of, that's that praise for John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a character. He had a shtick. He was the crazy weird dude in the desert. Uh, we'll read in the scripture, right? He like ate insects and lived off of honey. I'm like, one of those sounds good. The other one doesn't. Uh, but it would have been so easy for John the Baptist to get full of himself, to think that the preaching that God had given him was all about him, that God's big plan culminated with him, but it doesn't. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter three as we look at the story of John the Baptist. Now it's interesting. Uh, we're, we're skipping a little bit around chronologically. We've been in the Old Testament the last few weeks and now we're jumping over Jesus's birth to look at the story of John the Baptist. So forgive us on that time and we'll come back to the birth of Jesus uh, at Christmas Eve next week. But we think it's really important to look at this story because I think it, it has some really important answers and truths for what happens when we realize that maybe our season of waiting wasn't actually about us. So in Matthew chapter three, it says this, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And now we're gonna put this on the screen. It's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. It says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now we get to John. Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, oddly enough, is, is continuing this account of John. It says this, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Interesting guy in a remote place that people are coming from afar to hear the words of. People are coming and they are confessing their sins and being baptized in the river. Right? This sounds like Jesus. There have been men throughout all of history that have seen far less evidence than those three things and still thought that they were Jesus come again or other people that thought they were Jesus. But John didn't. He kept his perspective. Next section picks up here. It says this, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There's some really harsh words in that passage that we're gonna bring some context to a little bit later in the teaching. So just like put a pin in that. I promise we're gonna come back to it. He keeps going and he's talking. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That quote from Isaiah always stands out to me. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist knows his role. He knows his place in this story. He knows that his role is simply this, to prepare the way for Jesus to make room for Jesus. 
He knows this first really important truth that if you're taking notes today, I want you to write down, and it's this. It's profound, it's long, it's deep. It's none of those things. It's simply this. It says this, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me either, and I'm so grateful for that. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us, and I think that there's something freeing in that truth. I hope that either right now or by the end of the teaching today, you hear the freedom in that truth. That's hard sometimes, right? It's hard to remember that. I think when we tell stories in our head, when we have a narrative in our head, we're always the main characters. Sometimes we're heroes, sometimes we're scapegoats, sometimes we're villains, and we can get into into that aspect of emotional and mental health. But I I think this, a lot of times, we are the main characters. As people, as humans, we are are wired in a way that we're fairly self-focused. So when I say, it's not about you, it's not about me, what do I mean when I say it? I mean life. I mean, the big life, why questions? Why are we here? What is my purpose here? What are we doing? What is this all coming together for? And I think it's so important that when we look at those big questions, we understand and we realize that it is not about us. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. That's why Christmas is a big deal. That's why Easter is a big deal. It's not about us. And I think when we put it in this simple, stark terms, it's helpful sometimes because I need this stark reminder. I have to guard against thinking that it's about me. I think any person inside the church, outside the church, but but especially inside the church, because we know God has careful words for us, who gets a microphone and gets on stage or gets in front of a camera, has to guard against thinking that it's about them. I'd be lying if I said that there weren't moments where as I'm getting ready to preach, I'm hoping for a response. I'm hoping for uh, people to show up and I have to ask myself that question. John, is that for you or is that for God? And I know that I have to look at that one because I know my own heart, but also because the Bible says, John, you need to watch for that as you're preaching the word of God. We're imperfect. I think a lot of times our greatest strengths can end up, you know, this double-edged sword that bring about our weaknesses as well. Another one for me, if I'm being really honest, I like being needed. Anyone else like being needed? It's comforting, right? It's awesome. It's great when people need you. You have comfort, you have security, you have safety, you know your role. You know that if people are always gonna depend on you, then you're always gonna have a place. I love being the person that people confide in, that people go to to solve problems, that people look to for help, that people look to and say, when stuff hits the fan, I go to John. And here's the thing that I want to say, like there is value in that. It is good to be dependable. There is nothing wrong with being a safe place for people to go to, for being a safe person, for making space for people where they feel seen and loved and heard. But there's a problem when we start to think it's about us and our own value and what we need to get out of it. There's also a reality, which is this, all of us are broken. All of us are flawed. We put it on the wall outside. We are all imperfect put it on another wall by Lowe's. We said this, we are all learning here. And there's a truth, which is this, that all of us, no matter how dependable we think we are or want to be, we let people down. I let people down. There are people in this room that I've let down and I'm sorry. Like that's just life. And we have to recognize that, that when, when, it, when I look at things in the grand scheme of everything and I compare myself and my brokenness to the person of Jesus Christ who came to earth, like I'm not even close to needed. And there's freedom in that because thank goodness I'm not needed in the same way that Jesus is because I'd never do it. 
At Christmas, we celebrate that, right? At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth in human form and did what none of us could do, which is this. He walked around this broken world. He was tempted, he was tried, he was hurt, he was spit on, he was pushed against, all these things, and he did everything perfectly. John the Baptist says it so well at the end of the passage we just read. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John was a faithful man. John was a great preacher of the word of God. And John says, I look at the person who's gonna come after me and I'm not even worthy to carry his dirty shoes. See, there's something about Jesus when he comes and he lives here on earth and we celebrate that at Christmas that shows us why it's so important and so freeing that it's not about you and it's not about me, it's actually about Jesus. Maybe you can write that somewhere. Like I know there are things that you hear in the Bible or you hear from the stage that, that would look really nicely embroidered on a pillow or, or cross-stitched on a wall and it's not about me doesn't seem to ring true <laughs> in that same way. Uh, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna see it at Hobby Lobby, but maybe we should. Like maybe you're like me and you're like, I'm gonna write on a three by five card. It's not about me and I'm gonna put it in my mirror. Maybe you're gonna put that in the dashboard of your car because something happens when we wake up every day with that reminder of it's not about me. Uh, my wife Rose and I are nervous first time parents of a kindergartner this year. We were lucky and fortunate enough that our, our kids had never done full-time daycare or, or full-time childcare. And so we sent our son Griffey off to school for the first time and we were so nervous. Guys, I love how well this church has partnered with our public schools. Like I know that our public schools are one of the only safe places for kids sometimes and, and I'm grateful. If you're here and you're working in, in our schools as, a, as an educator, as an administrative official, like thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a tough year. And this has not been a year that anyone in education signed up for. They didn't sign up for it last year. They didn't sign up for it this year. And there's been so hard and so difficult. And guys, like my son's had an amazing year. Like he's just the happiest kindergartner that you could ever see. And uh, we wanted to be great parents. We wanted to be nice parents to the school. And we wanted to, to, to bring this reminder that I think all Jesus followers need to bring, which is this, it's not about me. Uh, but something happened the other week at his school and I, I sat down at a computer and I was talking to my wife Rose. I was like, I don't wanna be the parent that writes an email to the principal. Like, I don't wanna be that person this year. But, you know, it's been a hard year. But something happened that we wanted to get clarification on. And, and so I sat down and as I was writing this email, I had this teaching in my head where I said, it's not about me. Guys, when you, when you go about your day, when you go tasks with this idea that it's not about you, you write emails differently. And I sat and I said, if I'm this principal, what's the last thing I need? And I was like, it's another angry parent email. And I was so careful, guys. I made Rose look at it. I, I, oh, I don't do this often, but I, was, like, I made the wise choice, actually. And like, I sat down and I wrote like, hey, we were so nervous going into this year. The teacher's been amazing. Your leadership has been amazing. It's just been an incredible thing. I know it's been a tough year. I'm really sorry. I have to ask this one question. And guys, the gracious response that I got back from our school's principal, she, was, she wrote back and she says, I don't get emails like this very often and I need them this year. Thank you for your kind words. And by the way, here's the answer to your question. It's all good. Like we took care of it. I just think this, like, can we be people who, who lead in our day-to-day -day lives with that? Where it's so easy for us to take up an offense that might've been a fair offense to take up. And instead of leading with that, say, what if it's not about me? 
I just think this, if, if you have kids in, in schools, especially in a, in a public school setting this year, will you do this? Will you go home at some point over the next week and write a nice email to their teacher? Will you write a nice email to your school's administrator and just say thank you? Like, and even if, even if it's in a tough year, and I get that, I'm not saying to overlook anything, but I'm just saying this, can we be people who lead with grace, who lead with kindness, and say thank you for what you're doing this year? Like, those kinds of things happen when we start to realize it's not about me. And again, I'm not saying to roll over. I'm not saying to forget offenses. I still ask the question that we thought was really important. We had a great answer. And like, even just if it wasn't the right Jesus-y thing to do, like, I think we got a better response from the principal because I led with kindness. Man, I just think this, this daily reminder of this truth of it's not about me. Something else that we see from John the Baptist's ministry, and again, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It's this. Again, really long. It's really short. It's this. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. That's why we're here together on a Sunday at a church as we're bringing people from completely different backgrounds, socioeconomic, political, uh, family of origin, everything. We're bringing together this room that's hopefully this melting pot that looks like the kingdom of heaven because we're saying it has to be bigger than just me. It has to be bigger than just you. Here's the thing. It's also bigger than anchor. I don't just mean like anchor. Like it's bigger than us, right? Like God's purpose in this world is so much bigger than what we are doing here in Tacoma. And I think there's a beauty in that. When we forget that it's bigger than us, when we forget that, I think there's two traps that we fall into. And one of those is this. Throughout history, there have been those who study the word of God and have tried to follow God and have thought this. If I just take care of myself, if I just get mine, I'm good with God. And that's all that matters. That's not the case. And actually, remember that, that part in the text where I said, we're going to put a pin in and we're going to come back to this language? Here we are. It says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, John the Baptist said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Just harsh language. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can sells. We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The Pharisees and Sadducees are often people that Jesus called out and Jesus condemned. Pharisees and Sadducees were, were church people, guys. They were people who were in positions of power in church and in a civic sense. And they were people who, who knew the Bible really, really well. The Sadducees were actually like written word fundamentalists. Like they knew the written word of God inside and out because they said if it's not in the written word of God, it doesn't, God didn't speak it. The Pharisees knew the word of God really, really well. They also believed God spoke in other ways. And again, they, they had a high esteem for the word of God. Both of these groups knew the word of God really well. Both of these groups did the right things. They showed up at church. They had that ritual of gathering that for them oftentimes became a ritual and not an actual genuine expression of faith. And both these groups, when it talks about children of Abraham, both these groups can trace a lot of their lineage um, and, their, and their ancestors back to the person of Abraham. And so these groups of people, right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was very easy for them to say something that lots of people have said, which is this, I know the Bible, I show up at church, and lots of people in my family have believed in God. I think I'm good with God. So easy for them to believe that. That's what they believed. And John the Baptist calls them out in this moment. He says, show me your fruit. And this is a really important distinction. It's not show me your fruit so that you can stave off the judgment of God. It's not do these good things, work these things, do this, show this fruit so that God does not judge you. It's the acknowledgement that's saying this, that God has forgiven you. God has staved off that judgment. And because of that, we are grateful. 
And out of that gratitude and out of a, a relationship with God, the evidence of a healthy relationship with God is that fruit that John the Baptist talks about. Right, this idea is why we as a church have been leaning so much into the community around us lately. We know it's bigger than us. It's bigger than what we're doing inside these four walls. It has to be. We think at Christmas time, there's a really unique opportunity to love our community well as everyone's in this habit of giving gifts. And we get to say, here's what we're doing and we're doing it because of Jesus. I mean, I'm so grateful for you guys for the way that you have showed up for people in our community with all these bringbacks, whether it's Olive Crest, whether it's Rescue Mission, the public schools or World Relief Today. Like, thank you. Thank you for doing that. There's another trap that we can fall into when we don't remember that it's bigger than us. And, and it's, if I'm being honest, it's the trap that I fall into most when I look at this. We can get overwhelmed by the weight of the world. When we forget that it's bigger than us, we can so easily fall into this trap of looking at all of the brokenness in this world. And there's so much. But looking at all the brokenness in this world and thinking that it's on us or on me to try to fix that, to take on more than we can. I know it's been an easy trap for me to fall into. And honestly, it comes about this way as I think too highly of myself, I elevate my role and I think I need to take care of more than God has ever asked me to. Right, it's why uh, about five or six years ago, I had this lyric tattooed on my arm. It says this, it says, make tiny changes to earth. Something that I needed as a, as a more than daily reminder, as a, as a mantra for my heart and my soul. The full line of the song lyric says this, it says, mark my words, while I'm alive, I'll make tiny changes to earth. And I love that. I love that, that as a reminder of my responsibility as someone who loves Jesus. Someone who, who Jesus, when he was teaching his, his closest followers how to pray, he had them include this line, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I love that, on earth as it is in heaven. We're not supposed to just exist here on earth. We're supposed to bring changes to earth our role as Jesus followers, to bring hope and light, not just in an eternal far off yet to be sense, but in a right now sense. But guys, your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, that's overwhelming. In Tacoma as it is in heaven is even overwhelming, right? And it's so hard for, for us to try to grab our heads around that. And so that's why I love that it says tiny changes because that helps me. That helps me remember that it is so much bigger than me and what God has asked me to do in the grand scheme of things, in the grand history of the universe and the timeline. And I look at my 80 or so years on earth that Lord willing I will get, I'm like, tiny changes, I can do that. Like in Tacoma as it is in heaven, I, no. But like tiny changes, I can do that. I can do that. Here's the thing, I, it's easy for me to be kind of flipping about these, these truths being simple and, and short and, and pretty blunt but I think they're really important for us it's not about me it's bigger than me here's the thing that I also know though it's, it's only it's a lot easier for us to, to take hold of these truths not in our head but in our hearts when we're in a spot where we're healthy enough to hear it I think this as a church we believe really heavily that, that emotional health is a part of discipleship to Jesus we think that when we follow Jesus, Jesus says, I want all of you, and that includes your emotions, that includes you being in a spot where you are emotionally healthy. As a church, we believe in that. Brian talked about why we're taking the 26th to online only. We, we believe in rest. Some of that's rest for you, but a lot of that's rest for, for our staff and our volunteer teams. So like, you know, we, rest is really important. We recently had someone uh, give some money to our Anchor Cares Fund, 
And Brian and I were talking and praying about what does God want us to do with that money? We're asking our nations and neighborhoods team, what, what do you think God's asking us to do with our money in that area that, that God has given to us? And when we were praying, we, we, we kept hearing God say the same thing. He said, help people get emotionally healthy. So at Anchor, we, like we said, we believe that emotional health is a part of discipleship. We believe that Jesus loves you and he loves all of you. We believe that, that all truth is God's truth and that there are people who, who have taken lots of time, efforts, energy to study the way that our brains are wired in our imperfect bodies in this imperfect world who are trained in helping people get emotionally healthy. So here's what Anchor is gonna do. We're gonna pay for three counseling sessions for anyone who needs it. Could be in this room, could be not in this room. Could be you could be someone you know who doesn't go to church. I don't care if someone believes in Jesus or not. Like, we're just like, we'll pay for three sessions to help someone get on the journey of being emotionally healthy. Here's the cool thing. Like, there's a good amount of money that we have set aside for that. A good amount of money that we have set aside for that. Someone asked me the other day, though, when we were talking about this, they said, John, do you think we should put a cap on it? I think a lot of times as a finance guy, people expect me to say no to things like that. Or they expect me to say yes. They're like, no, we need a cap. I'm like, no, we're not going to cap it. They're like, what if we run out of money? I was like, man, it's gonna be cool to see how God shows up. And that's funny, but it's also true because guys, I did the same thing when people asked me about the drive-through dinners we did all during 2020. Like, I think I got up on the stage and some of you know, I got up on the stage or in front of a camera as it was. And I was like, we're going forward in faith. <laughs> like we have some benevolence money. It's gonna run out if we keep feeding 200 people every Wednesday night. But we kept feeding 200 people every Wednesday night and God showed up the way that God always does. I was like, he used loaves and fished for 5,000. Like, I think we can do 200 on a Wednesday. Like, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> and so here's the thing, like, I don't, like, the, the funds are there. When they run out, I fully believe that God's gonna be faithful to show up and bring the funds where he says he wants us to lead out on this. And so if you're interested in that, uh, counseling resource. We're going to have a list of counselors that we recommend, but again, it doesn't have to be, someone doesn't have to go to a counselor we recommend to get the three counseling sessions. If, if we're going to release um, kind of the process for um, putting your name in to get those funds paid out to a counselor closer to January. If you're interested in that information, whether it's for you or a friend that you know or asking for a friend, uh, it's fine. Like, it, it's fine. Uh, will you fill out the connection card and put that in the prayer request section? Like I just, I've been in church environments where it feels like everyone's in therapy and they're fun, guys. Like, it's fun. Some of my best parenting tips have been through someone else's therapy experience. Like, I kid you not. So like, there's no shame in this. And again, we, our heart is this. God's saying, will you help people get emotionally healthy going into 2022? We're gonna talk more about what it looks like to get emotionally healthy going into 2022 in our online gathering on the 26th. Uh, I'm a little biased because I'm teaching there as well, but it's worth checking out. Um, we're going to talk again about what does it look like to be emotionally healthy and get on track with that going into 2022. So again, if you're interested in being on a list for more information about those counseling sessions, uh, please put that in the prayer request section of your connection card. There's one more thing, though, that I think we need to talk about on this last Sunday going into Advent. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it, and it's this. Anticipation is meant to be shared with others. It's meant to be shared with others. We've talked about this all month where we've talked about the seasons of waiting. We don't want you to be alone. We are not wired to be alone. We are wired for community. Again, that's why we're in the room together. Christmas is fun for me. I mean, Christmas is awesome. But like Christmas is really fun for me this year because I'm getting to see it through the eyes of a four-year-old and a six-year-old. 
And man, their anticipation, my four, she's not four yet because she turns four on Christmas Eve and then gets Christmas the day after. Her anticipation level is just off the charts. <laughs> and it's fun. It's special when we get to share anticipation with each other. It's something so sweet that we get to see and enjoy with each other. Like I think when we have moments when we're, if you're waiting for something, will you share that with someone? Either so you're not alone or so they get the joy of, of, of anticipating and waiting that with you. And have band and communion teams come forward though because we want to talk about this. There's a holy anticipation as well. It's why Advent is sacred, right? Advent is sacred because after hundreds of years of silence from God, after hundreds of years of the followers of God asking really big questions that we all ask, like, God, where are you? God, are you here? God, do you care about me? God, do you work anymore? God himself shows up on earth. That's why Advent is special. There's this holy anticipation. The anticipation is meant to be shared with others. It says this in the, uh, Matthew 3. John's talking about Jesus and he says this, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John says this, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I think it's interesting. A lot of times we can look at this text on surface value and see this language of fire and, and immediately go into some, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church. So I go back to this like old fire and brimstone language. And it's interesting. Jesus, John's actually talking this. He's saying this, that when Jesus comes into your life, he's going to keep what's good and burn what's not. I love that. I think a lot of times we read this passage and we think the downside, we think this guilt of like, what if I don't share? And there is a downside to not sharing this holy anticipation. There is a downside to not sharing about our faith in Jesus, but I promise you the upside is far greater when we do share. That when we do share, we get to see more people fall in love with Jesus. That when we do share, we get to see more people come to know the life-changing work of Jesus, which John the Baptist says this, Jesus will come into your life. He's gonna keep what's good and he's gonna get rid of what isn't and we're all gonna be better for it. I love that picture. As we head into a time of prayer, worship, and communion, there's, there's kind of two things that I want us to be praying for. The first is this. I think anytime we talk about sharing this anticipation, right? The anticipation of, of remembering the birth of Jesus and, and anticipating the day that Jesus is gonna come and make all things new. Anytime we talk about sharing that, I don't know about for you, but for me, I got some names in my head. I got some names in my head of people I love that I've been praying for, for a long season. I've been praying, God, will you soften their hearts? God, will you make them turn to you? God, will you open their eyes to see what I've seen, which is that you truly change everything for the better. I think some of us are in this room and we can hear me say like we have a responsibility and an upside to share and a downside to not sharing and we can feel guilt, we can feel shame, we can feel paralyzed and we can feel hurt for our friends and our loved ones that don't yet know Jesus. If that's you, I'm sorry, I'm there too. I wanna pray for you this morning in that. Second thing I wanna pray for is this, I wanna pray for the awkward conversations we're gonna have over the next few days. Inviting people to church is awkward. I'm a pastor. We can acknowledge it. Let's just say, like, it feels awkward sometimes. I'm a pastor and I get awkward. Like, can you pray for me? I'm going to talk to my neighbors and I don't want to. Can I work here? Like, I just, 
I start to get caught up in all these questions about like, what if they feel this? What if they think that? What if they think this? What if they think I'm weird? They might already think I'm weird. They think I'm really weird. Like, it's so easy to get caught in all this. And I just think this, that in spite of that, God's still saying, will you do that? Will you grab one of those cards from the lobby and hand it to your neighbor? Will you take a picture on one of those cards and will you text it to someone? Will you share something that we put on social media specifically for you to share to say, will you come and sit with me and together we're gonna hear about someone who's changed everything in my life. Will you just come and sit with me? We have people who would love to pray with you this morning. They're at the, the, the large black walls in the corners of the room. They would love to pray with you. Whether it's about fears of, of awkwardness or rejection, about inviting someone to Christmas Eve, whether it's about people that you've been praying for to say yes to Jesus for years that have not said yes, whether it's about anything else, we would love to pray with you this morning. And then at the front and in the back of the room, we have communion stations. Here's our heart on what communion is. Communion's a time where we remember the work of Jesus. Remember the fact that after these years of anticipation, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he shed his blood for us and he broke his body for us so that we could have hope and eternal life with him. And he rose again from the dead three days later. So if you've said yes to Jesus, even if you said yes to Jesus this morning, we would love for you to take communion with us this morning. At some point during the song, just come forward and, and take the elements and you can partake of those. Church, will you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for the fact, the freedom in the fact that it is not about me, it's not about any other person in this room, God, but it is all about you. God, we are grateful for the fact that it's not on our shoulders, but it was on your shoulders. And you said, you've already paid that price. God, we thank you for the fact that you did. You paid that price and you rose again three days later and you defeated death. God, we are grateful for the time that you say is coming, God, that we can anticipate, that we can look to with anticipation, where you say you will come and make all things new. You will get rid of all brokenness. You will wipe all the tears from our eyes. God, we lift up this. We lift up the names in this room that are unsaid, the friends of ours, the loved ones of ours. Heck, even the people in this room, God, that are, are searching for you and don't know it yet. God, we pray this. We pray for softened hearts. We pray for changed lives. We pray for miracles in hearts this year as we head into Christmas, God. And God, we also this, will you, will you be with us in our conversations? Will you give us courage? Will you give us confidence? Will you quiet our nerves? Will you quiet the voice in our head that says, what if they think I'm weird? What if they don't like me? And will you be with us as we reach out to our loved ones and our neighbors and those we are near and say, will you come sit with me at Christmas and hear about the one person who's changed everything for me and wants to change everything for you? So God, we thank you so much for what you've done and what you're going to do. In your name, amen.